Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 150 of the National Security Law Podcast. It's Thursday, January 16th, 2020. We've been sworn in by the Chief Justice. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. He's finally presiding over a trial for the first time in his career. Hey, he might he might find he wants to change courts. Uh, <laughs> what, more of these? That, yes, I'm sure he wants more of these. Um, but wait, it's not just you and me. We have a special guest for our sesquicentennial episode. We have a sesquicentennial... Uh, by the way, it's really hard to say. And spell. It's very hard to spell. Show title. Uh, this podcast cannot spell sesquicentennial. Rather like it's hosts. Yes. Yeah, but it's not just us today. We are really excited to have with us the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, Chris Krebs. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it's really a treat to have you here. Um, you're in town, of course, because UT is co-hosting with the Atlantic Council, the uh, Austin Regional of the Cyber 912. It's a cybersecurity policy competition that the Atlantic Council has been curating for many years now, and we were lucky enough here at UT to begin hosting a, uh, um, an, I guess, a regional, I'm calling it, of, of that competition. And it's a lot, load of fun. Right as we talk here, there are 20 teams of students from all over the country, uh, lots of Texas teams, but many from further and far away. Uh, and, and if they win, they go to the Elite Eight, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they get, if they win, they get farther than the UT basketball team has been getting. Shots, Shots fired. fired. Yeah. yeah. No, um, if, if they win, they actually, it's kind of cool. There's a cash prize here at this version of the competition. Uh, automatic acceptance into the national competition that Atlantic Council does in D.C. in March. And uh, all three teams that make the finals also, and this is my favorite part, they get a little starter library of cybersecurity-related books like Cliff Stoll's Cuckoo's Egg. Uh, what else is in it this year? Uh, Sandworm, of mm-hmm. course, is in there. And uh, a few other, uh, I think, maybe Perfect Weapon and a few other good ones. So anyways, um, Chris is keynoting this as we're done here. We're basically doing this right before he has to go uh, to the microphone. Chris, you're a trooper for doing double duty, but I'm going to make it up to you by taking you to Franklin Barbecue tonight. I, yes, and let's be clear. I'm here for the barbecue and the tacos and the keynote <laughs> second. Uh, the, the other thing I'll add on top of that with the students is that this is a great place, a great opportunity for me to go come in and uh, recruit. Uh, so last year when the, the finals were in D.C., we were able to do some pretty good recruiting and extend some job offers on the spot. That's fantastic. And, and we will be doing that in earnest down here as well. That's fantastic. Um, we will cut this short and get downstairs. I'm going to line up my students in front of you. But, but, but I, 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 are you recruiting also for a new manager for the Mets? Oof. As a Nats fan, <laughs> I'm really loving this. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the Nats did finally win a playoff series, so I guess they got they got that. Out. <laughs> um, actually, Dave Martinez is now the only active manager who has won a World Series. Ah, that's really something. It is. Um, we are definitely going to keep our usual frivolity segment at the end and uh, drag Chris down to our level. We'll talk Major League Baseball. And then there's kind of a rule of law. Although the more he talks about the Nationals, maybe the less we we'll <laughs> Steve is wearing his Mets hat, which is often and, the case. Excuse me, and my shorts. Mets shorts. And, and his shorts. Mets shorts. And his Mets shorts. So I, I had a really good year as a uh, sports fan last year because I'm also a UVA fan. Oh, and, nice. uh, you know, basketball national championship. We're not doing so hot this year, but... Uh, I'll take that and run with it. I'll take it down here to the who's. I had a really good sports year, like you know, ten years ago. <laughs> we had that one moment in the middle of the podcast season, baseball season overlap, where the Mets had won. Come out, was it coming out of the break and they, they got hot? Really hot. Yeah, that that was a moment. It was rare. <laughs> All right, we have a lot of sports to talk. We have a lot of rise of Skywalker to talk, and we will be clear about spoiler alert. And we get to the frivolity segment. So if you haven't seen it, don't want to hear about it or just really don't want to hear the frivolity at all, we'll give you the chance to sign off. 
Um, and, and maybe a little bit in, in honor of the passing of Neil Peart, although that may well come up in conversation, I think, uh, <laughs> before the frivolity, and it may not turn out to be a frivolous conversation at all. No. All right. Uh, so I, this show, dear listeners, is going to be uh, basically all about the interview here, the interview and the frivolity. Uh, Steve and I are mindful that other things are happening, and we'll be back covering those in our next episode, uh, probably at the regular time next week. Um, a lot like the return of like Star Trek Picard, which debuts next week. Yeah, we will certainly be talking about Picard. There's no doubt about that. Did you, did, did you see, by the way, yesterday in uh, London, they turned the entire Piccadilly tube station into Picard? No, Day. they did not. And, like, logos and everything. <laughs> that's, that's some fine advertising. Well, well done, TFL. Well played, well played. All right, um, to business. Chris, uh, so you were born and then what happened? <laughs> uh, it, all, it, all, it all went downhill from there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. By the way, I clearly ripped that line <laughs> off from my wife who uses that in conversation all the time. Good job, Heather. Um, that's, that's quite an icebreaker. Yeah, let's let's kind of get the, the career rundown. How did you uh, – you kind of came into this from the risk management side. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah. So I actually am I'm, I'm one of you, uh, lawyer by training. Um, but I came uh, came into this role actually, you know, kind of going to way back machine. Um, started in risk management, actually on the maritime consulting side. Did oh. you know uh, Open ninety work, so oil spill response. Went through all that qualified individual training stuff. Ended up uh, uh, working uh, in some Coast Guard related work that then fed into the stand up of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, in the 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 shop I'm in now, I was uh, a contractor and then a Fed. Uh, was in the Bush administration. Uh, went out into the wilderness uh, in 2009 and did uh, a series of different risk uh, management engagements, including working for one of those companies that uh, was was rolled up in the Western District of Pennsylvania indictments of the Chinese uh, oh. hackers. Wow. Um, yeah. The Dave Hickton uh, yeah. indicted. So um, that that kind of, you know, the bug bit me then on the risk management side, did, did some time at Microsoft, uh, and then came back into government in 2017. That first round with government, when you were there sort of president of the creation with DHS, how much was cyber, either on your mind or as near as you could tell, institutionally more broadly on everyone else's mind with NPPD in its early days? So the, the early days, so the predecessor organizations to NPPD, which is the National Protection Programs Directorate, but it's also a chemical compound that the Soviets used to use to track uh, foreign agents in Moscow and elsewhere. It's one of these swipe it on your shoe, follow your footprints. Something like that, uh-huh. yeah. And, uh, you know, from what I understand, um, in the stand-up of the 03, you know, 2003 stand-up of the department, you know, they kind of had to fight to wedge uh, cybersecurity in the department. And, uh, you know, I was more on the physical side uh, of the the infrastructure protection side, um, where where cyber was actually included in infrastructure protection. And, you know, the budget on the physical side was huge. The cyber side was quite small. uh, But in, you know, the intervening, you know, 16, 17 years or whatever it is, uh, it's kind of gone the other way. The cyber budget's significant. Yeah. It's obviously the thing that is on everybody's mind. It's the thing that you know I get the, the, the I testify more on cyber related issues than I do f- physical issues on the hill. So um, it, it is quite different than it was back back in the day. Was it the case? So obviously. Uh, the predecessor and current versions of the organization, we'll get to the name change in a second, mm-hmm. uh, obviously concerned with the security of information systems for the federal government itself and with critical infrastructure. Is it fair to say there comes a point where the growing strategic significance of what we might call the rest of cybersecurity or cyber for the rest of us, mom and pop and everyone else, mm-hmm. um, 
maybe was a little out of scope early on, but then eventually kind of became more in scope and a matter of concern? Or was that a concern for this entity the entire time? Uh, I mean, I think you, given limited resources, both financial and, and personnel, you got to focus on where you can make an impact. And the, and the the federal network piece, the civilian agencies, the 99 uh, federal agencies, that's where I get the majority of my budget it is focused on um, a number of the programs that provide services to you know, those non-DOD, non-intelligence community agencies. So we do a lot of work there. Um, but, but ultimately, uh, we are able to extract a significant amount of insight and capability from that work in the federal government uh, and then uh, provide insights out into the private sector. So ultimately, I think I have kind of three audiences. One is the, the more technical uh, blue team network defender community, you know, typically thought of as the chief information security officer and down into the uh, <clears throat> security team. The second piece is, is actually evolving more into really trying to target the executive decision makers. You know, I kind of have a theory that I think is, uh, you'd probably see uh, you know, the Dmitry Alperovitch's of CrowdStrike of the World, I think, uh, you, know, follow, you know, endorses or, you know, this is kind of maybe even ripped off from him. But, uh, you know, it starts, it starts with awareness that then leads into investment that builds capabilities. But if you don't have the awareness that can, that can generate the investment within a team, you're, you're just not going to have the capabilities you need. So we really put a lot of effort into talking kind of reasonable, plain language to executives. And that's not just the CEOs, but it's also the general counsels. Yep. It's the boards of directors. Um, and, and then the third community is the one that, that we, we are working on that it's taking a little bit more, I think, careful thought of how to do it effectively is the general public. You know, how do we, you know, this is a great example this past week with the Windows 10 uh, related vulnerabilities. You know, how can we get something out to the general public and let them know that, yeah, your machine probably has auto update, but just go ahead and make sure that you're updating this thing. Unless, unless you're my mother or my mother-in-law, in which case it definitely doesn't have auto update. <laughs> yeah, well, I, the classic, you know, they uh, don't patch. Yeah, basically. Or they're running Windows XP still or something exactly. like that. Yeah. And now 07 just got end of life, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So they got patched. Uh, Windows 7 got patched on Tuesday. But, you know, henceforth, <laughs> so no more patching. Thanks for all the fishes. Yes. Um, so you you come back into DHS. What 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 um, has changed at what was it still NPPD yep. at that time? Yeah. Did it seem different when you got back in? And, and what's this business about? Why change the name? Why did it become CISA? Well, so, okay. The, so I came back in March 2017, was a counselor on the cybersecurity and infrastructure security and in the resilience, meaning the, the FEMA side of the shop and DHS, a counselor to Kelly, General Kelly. Um, the thing that stood out to me first and foremost as having changed the most dramatically, not just in the you know eight or nine years I was out, but honestly in like the last year and a half was, what are you telling me? I've got to worry about election security. I don't even <laughs> understand what that means. That was not something that I really anticipated coming in. And, and the funny thing is it's changed so much is that when I came in day one, um, the amount of correspondence that was coming in from the Hill, from state and local governments and officials uh, all over the place was, you know, how dare you at DHS try to take over elections and designate a critical infrastructure and try to regulate. First off, of course, that was not what we were trying to do. We were just trying to help provide security assistance. Well, I remember when Secretary Johnson put out his, oh, yeah. uh, his designation, and, it, and I have my students read this to learn a little bit about the politics of this, because it's shot through. Most of what he says is about saying, we're not doing this, we're not doing yeah. that, to the point where you wonder, well, what are you doing? Yeah. It, and it was a clear reflection of how sensitive the federalism-style politics and perhaps other politics were in that context. I, so, I mean, the, the, 
I guess the interesting thing here is that I was um, not expecting it. Uh, was quite taken aback initially by how sensitive and kind of political the community is, uh, in, in, for the right reasons, though. Yeah, right. Uh, and as a result, uh, have put a significant amount of effort into into this space. I probably at this point uh, spend forty to fifty percent of my time specifically on election security and, and protecting the twenty twenty elections. Uh, but but at this point, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, the community of folks that we work with all across the country. I was in Columbus, Ohio yesterday. Um, meeting with all the election officials from every jurisdiction across the state. Uh, it is a passionate team. They need our help and we're, we're going we're gonna to give it to them. Uh, but as I tell my team on a regular basis, if, if there's something else you do in the rest of your career that is even half as important as this, then, you know, good on you. Uh, but, but this is, this is big time stuff. And, and I think we're, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're getting where we need to be. Let's go down that rabbit hole a bit with the elections. Yeah. We'll come back to the change of name and all the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the average person who doesn't follow this area that closely but, but reads the news, here's a fair amount of, of barking back and forth about federal funding and, and so forth for election security. Um, whatever happens there, that that's Congress. You can't control that. But, but there is stuff that DHS and that you can do. So can you kind of walk us through what exactly is the value add of CISA yeah. for all these efforts, bearing in mind that so much of so much of the election structure is at the state and local level? So first and foremost, it's raising awareness. And, and you might say, what do you mean? Doesn't everybody know that Russia tried to you know, interfere with the 2016 election? There's still a lot of work we've got to do to get out there. In 2016, if you ask the average election official whether they were on the front lines of geopolitical conflict, I think the, you know, the vast majority would say, what are you, crazy? Mm-hmm. Now, the majority of them are like, yeah, we get it. We're, you know, we're connected. We're online. But you still, there's still a lot of work. There are 8,800 or so election jurisdictions in, uh, in the country. You know, there's like 1,800 in Wisconsin, 1,600 in Michigan. So there's still a lot of work to get out there and you know, get to the edge of the problem set. Uh, so we, we do a lot of engagement, a lot of um, uh, public uh, partnership type work, again, just trying to raise awareness. And we're trying to build a community of practice in election security. Uh, in 2016, there was no kind of go-to apparatus for all the election officials to come together and say, what, what should I be worried about security-wise, cybersecurity-wise, physical security-wise? You know, in, in the last several years, we've established an ISAC, which is an information sharing and analysis center. Uh, there's an election-specific one. All 50 states, at this point, about 2,400 jurisdictions. And that's a way that if I see something happening, whether it's you know increasing tensions with Iran and here are the techniques that Iran uses and some detections and mitigations you can use lined up against the MITRE attack framework, I can send those out and I can hit scale real quick. That didn't exist three years ago. Uh, we also have uh, technical services. So we raise awareness, we share information, best practices, and then we provide technical services too. We do vulnerability scanning of um, internet connected uh, devices within within an, uh, a, a, an election jurisdiction. And, and, you know, sometimes they have a capability in the more equipped counties or states, but that's not all the times, you know, the case. Even, even here in Texas, we're still working with, you know, to those 254 counties trying to touch everybody as much we can, provide vulnerability assessments, exercises, training. If you're a government official, we have uh, dozens, if not over 100 hours worth of training free to government officials. If you got a .gov address, you can get free training. And that's that's a big thing for us. Um, but, but also, kind of going back to that awareness on those vulnerability assessments that we do, 
we can go out there and you know after about 20 or 30 of those assessments we can go look at uh, we, we don't actually even have to go to the next do the next requested assessment because we've got enough insight from those 20 or 30 that we can predict with about 90 to 95 percent confidence what the next one's going to look like so again it's sharing information and expertise if you could you obviously don't have prescriptive or regulatory yep. authority over these entities and so to a certain extent, there must be entities out there that aren't doing things that you know you, they ought to be doing, or maybe they'd like to, but they don't have the resources. But if you can ma- wave a magic wand over the machinery or yeah. the processes or both, uh, is there anything you would do? Would you, for example, uh, wave that wand and declare that there shall be paper backups yeah. on every single voting machine? This is one of those things that we've been pretty clear about for, for quite some time now. Um, Auditability, paper backups, um, that, that's, that should be the starting point. The good news here is that the, the market generally, so the vendors, uh, almost you know, exclusively their products have some kind of paper record. The whole concept of, of paperless systems is generally speaking not, um, th- those aren't being sold. Now, yes, there was Taylor County, Texas from last summer that did buy a DRE, but those are edge cases more than, more than the general thrust of uh, election equipment buying these days. So those are, you know, that's the start, right? Election, or sorry, auditable systems, and then actually conducting post-election audits. We think those are important. Um, the big, you know, there's there's some discussion going around right now about whether any of these devices, tabulators or other machines, should have, you know, connectivity modems enabled so they can modem in on official results. I think any sort of connectivity modem, uh, relate, uh, any sort of modems embedded in tabulators or other election, it's probably not a good practice. And, and we yeah. do advise and recommend that, that you remove those or, or uh, you know, physically disable them. Um, it, I mean, those are kind of like the top line things. Um, we do want, uh, you know, Congress has allocated two different batches of money over the last couple of years, $380 million in the FY18 omnibus, and then just now 420 million, 25 million, and that's going to go out. But still, it's it's like, so New Jersey is a great example of a state that needs some help. Uh, they are all on... Um, you mean in general? Well, uh, you know, their Twitter account is on fire. <laughs> is it? Oh, my God. All right. I expect nothing less. It is fantastic. Less. They kind of got like a Jersey Shore kind of feel to it? You, you, I, you just got to see it. I, I, yeah, I don't... You just need to go see it. The boss. But New Jersey... Um, has uh, these direct recording equipment machines, which means they don't have a paper. It, you know, you touch a selection on the screen, it goes into the removable media on the mm-hmm. device, into storage on the device. Um, they're, they're, they want to switch over, um, and they're doing everything else right, but they want to switch over to these other these machines that have paper, and it's going to cost them about $114 million. Mm-hmm. In the 2018 budget, um, their chop out of that that initial allocation was fourteen million dollars. So they're not there, yeah. and it's not a it's not a state that's you know um, fiscally don't have a hundred million lying around to no, close that no. gap. So those are the sorts of things that that we're we're really trying to figure out. Okay, how can we help them, and what are the compensating controls you can put around parallel testing to look? Because really the concern there would be um, you know some some you know hacker Russian or otherwise would be able to get into a machine and and alter the the system to have a different result which which is one one attack theory um, among many well okay so what else besides if, if elections there in your top tier of concerns election security uh, what else is there either right there with it or just below it yeah so I talked about federal networks so coming out of 
that um, the dark, dark period of the federal government shutdown last year, I set out a, a set of uh, priorities for the agency, thinking that, that we were not going to be able to be off for 35 days and then be able to spin back up to 100% operating capacity right off the bat. So I said, these are the five things we're going to focus on. First was federal networks. About a, you know half of my budget is, is, or just under half of my budget is focused on federal network security. Uh, so that was number one. Uh, number two is election security. Um, three and four on the cyber side, um, supply chain security right now. Uh, so really, really actually the, the way I, I constructed the priority was China, supply chain, and 5G. Very small issues, mm -hmm. really kind of niche yeah, you just solved issues. those. Yeah, well, uh, but, but it really kind of manifested into a, a really deep focus on supply chain uh, security uh, in bringing our partners together in the IT and comm sector and saying, all right, what, what, what's working for you? What are the best practices? What are the gaps, the things we need to develop? You know, how do we incentivize uh, purchasing from uh, authorized resellers or OEMs and, and you know, eradicating counterfeit material or counterfeit componentry bought off eBay that comes in from China, stuff like that. Um, and then the last thing is really an emerging area uh, for, for us. We've been in it for a while, uh, but an emerging, emerging area of both leadership across the federal government as well as, you know, really supporting and assisting industry is industrial control system. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, going forward is going to be a significant area of risk. So it's, it's not about the IT systems that are on the corp net, but the things that are driving the, the shop floor, the manufacturing processes, IoT in some cases, HVAC, you know. That there is, um, it, it's just not as mature of an industry from a security perspective. The the most successful organizations uh, are are you know four years old, really. On on that front, so I mentioned Sandworm earlier. Andy Greenberg's terrific mm -hmm. book, um, yeah. very much an ICS story, or at least in a significant part. Um, and one of the lessons many people have, have touted from the Ukrainian experience uh, with their uh, their grid issues. Um, how lucky they were to have so much analog still remaining, and, and it was this—the ability to go and, and make manual switch moves yeah. that would offset some of the uh, the software problems they were having. Um, advanced economies and more developed places in places like America are constantly moving away from those sorts of capabilities for reasons of efficiency, and that's all great. But should we be concerned that we are smart sitting and uh, you know? I guess what I'm trying to get at is, are, are we driving so hard towards getting everything networked and getting everything done through software controls and uh, eliminating the analog and physical components that we're, that we're losing our ability to have resiliency in some of these critical systems? So I think that's the key word you just mentioned was resiliency. You, you mentioned the grid in Ukraine. Um, the grid in Ukraine is probably more akin to the grid in Puerto Rico. Um, prior to Maria, in that it was a um, not very diversified, reliable system, single loop. Uh, there wasn't, you know, a series of interconnects, microgrids, or otherwise resilience and redundancy built in. The continental grid with the interconnects and things like that, and the investments that the majors have made over the, you know, the big investor-owned utilities have made over the last several years, it is a highly resilient grid highly resilient. So from a cyber perspective, is it something we worry about? Of course, because we know the bad guys are looking around. The Russians were mucking around in energy infrastructure two, two years ago, what we called Alien Viper. Um, yeah, they, they, they've shown interest. You know, the things that we need to extend our view over and our work on, and this was what uh, Director of National Intelligence Coates talked about last year in his Worldwide Threat Assessment, was the ability of of in particular the Chinese to target 
natural gas pipelines and cause you know temporary disruptive effects. Uh, why is that significant? Well, if you look at the diversity of feedstock or uh, that goes into baseload generation of the grid, which is you know if you need to pull power out of generation quickly due to some sort of event, including, you know, the, the, I think the case is like a bomb cyclone that would hit Pennsylvania or something like that, yeah. where it gets really cold really fast, you need a lot of generation. You're not going to get that from solar. You're not going to get that from wind. You can get that from coal. You can get that from nuclear. You can yeah. get that from natural gas. Well, what's happened to the nuclear fleet? It's getting retired. Coal is also phasing out. So now we have an increased dependency on natural gas that we've all, we're also seeing some vulnerabilities in the systems and the way they're architected. So that's that's where we're putting a lot of effort right now. We've got a pipeline security initiative working with TSA, Department of Energy, and the Federal Energy uh, Regulatory uh, Commission. So big big area there. Um, smart cities, yeah, and, and I think you got to kind of st- step back and look at uh, the incentive structures around technology right now. IoT is probably the best case in that, you know, the, the the urgency is to get the product to market, whether it's driven by, you know, your venture backing or whatever, it's getting it to market. It's not getting it to market securely. Right. So until we can either change those dynamics and by putting, you know, more pressure on the developers, the designers, the manufacturers, the integrators, or you, you go through the resellers. I mean, to me, it would be pretty cool if you got a um, if you had some kind of standard, a cyber UL yep. or that cyber good uh, housekeeping seal of approval, and you got a major retailer to say, we are only going to sell products that have this label right. on it. Right. Like that's, Amazon could be the choke yeah. point. That yeah, drives. you said it, not me, but that's, that's the, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but those are, I mean, that's what, that's the kind of, 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 of phase shift that we're going to need to, but, to I mean, eradicate some of this risk. And it seems to me that that dovetails, you know, I mean, the attorney general has been in the news this week. Um, and last, right, because we're we're back to, to to trying to unlock iPhones. Um, and I guess I just you know, is there? Do you think where the law is right now is is effective in this respect? I mean, if you if you had your druthers, would is there a way that Congress could sort of think about whether these manufacturers should be actually um, providing some kind of you know assurances on the cyber side that you know is there the flip side concerns we see in the apple case that if you actually are asking the you know the the software or the hardware designers to to build vulnerabilities into the process they'll be exploited by people who aren't the government i mean how do we square that circle right so i'm not gonna try but you know some of the things that i think about is um, our, well, first off, this stuff's really hard. I mean, how long have we been working? Has Congress been working at data breach notification requirements? You have this, this, you know, fifty plus uh, data breach requirements state to state. There's no really no, there's no model rule for for data breach notification that's that could be sucked up to the federal level. And you've got the tensions between the retailers and the banks, and you know who's responsible for for a breach or, or you know a compromise of an account, things like that. So we've still got a long way to go on just the basics. Um, I think California's got an interesting approach on IoT. There are a couple bills floating around that would require the federal government to have a set of standards for IoT before purchasing. Uh, Senator Warner's uh, been championing that one. And it makes sense to me from a certain respect because, you know, what does the federal government really have from a non-regulatory? What, what, what kind of uh, element of co- uh, compulsion do we have that's not regulatory? It's the power of the purse. Mm-hmm. You know, when, right. when the Department of Defense buys something, they're buying a lot of it. 
when the rest of the federal government is buying something, they're buying a lot of it. So, so pull the market towards a certain standard because there's a lot of sales to be had only if you meet that standard, yeah. the federal government. And you're not going to bifurcate your, your manufacturing processes or, proce- right. or manufacturing lines, you know, to, to do the normal market. And then, you know, maybe you'll do your old kit. It's like California emission standards. You can drive the rest of the country by pulling them along with you. And, you know, those are sorts of policy um, conversations among others that, that, you know, we're kind of going through right now that makes sense that, you know, it's hard to do all of this quickly um, in, a, in a rational way that doesn't stifle innovation. But at the same time, it's like we know that the stuff's coming out, particularly stuff, the, the stuff that's coming out of China. I mean, my I got an example, and I know I'm killing the clock here, but this is like a testifying. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got five minutes. Um, Which senator are we? <laughs> well, then you'd have seven, so... Yeah. Um, but but the the, um, the the argument here is so my my wife wanted to get my son a smartwatch uh, for for Christmas so that you know he could run around the neighborhood you could have a couple text uh, numbers lined up you could do a phone call you could geofence yeah. and things like that and so the 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 wireless carrier we're on doesn't sell it only sells a couple of the the, mo- the modern watches the Apple Watch the Samsung uh, watch and I was like well where's all this other stuff and you know they made a conscious decision that they're not going to plug this no-name, no, yeah. you know, unknown brand stuff that you can buy on Amazon or whatever, they're not going to put it into into their ecosystem. Not all the carriers have made that decision. And, you know, for me, it's a privacy risk. I don't want an open mic walking around my house more than I already have with, <laughs> right. you know, you know, we, we did disable Alexa a long time ago. But right. um, these sorts of things that... Or you know, did you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I come home and my kids keep plugging it in to play, you know, Old Town Road or whatever. And it's <laughs> really aggravating. But anyway, the song and the... The uh, song and the, the, the functionality, the yeah. But, but anyway, so those are the sorts of things, again, we're trying to figure out, like, how do you shape the market without having to take significant regulatory steps? Yeah. Okay, so turning back to uh, the other topics... Um, I was going to ask you about the, the switch to CISA, but I think, so MPPD becomes CISA. All right. Mm-hmm. And is that the right pronunciation? Yes. Right yes. For, for the cybersecurity it's like infrastructure DISA, security agency. Right? The yeah. Defense Information Security Agency. Uh, yeah. Good. Not, so, not CISA, like Visa. So I want to understand, I, I was talking to some, some of your team that's here uh, and earlier, and one of them, uh, Chris, who's based out of Dallas, had this great observation. When, oh, was it? My, my bad. I've been calling you Chris all day. Sorry, Chad. Um, that's that's par for the course for me. So he had this great observation about how um, when I was asking about his advice on what slices of the organization ought to be taught to students who need to know the lay of the land, uh, Chad said, well, you know, don't worry so much about the labels. And, and those labels change fast. I hadn't actually known until Chad said that uh, NKIC is no longer NKIC, which is going to require some updating. Mm-hmm. Um and the insight that we need to focus on teaching people the functionality and the authorities and the purposes of the different pieces of, of the enterprise rather than the, the current names, I thought was a really great insight. Yep. So can you give me, without worrying so much about the names, just like the key functional capabilities that are under your purview? Um, you know, I, I kind of hit it um, a little bit earlier at, a, at another event, but you know, I, I kind of think of us as a, a chief security officer uh, without the ability to really, um, really make a change. So, so first and foremost, I, you know, I think of us as the nation's risk advisor. You know, not the nation's risk manager. Very careful here with words because I'm not managing anybody's risk. They manage the risk. I give them information to make better decisions. So the nation's risk manager or advisor rather. Um, and then we have kind of five areas of focus: IT security, OT security, ICS, supply chain security, insider threat, 
uh, and then physical security. So those are the kind of five disciplines or domains that we really spend a lot of time thinking about. How can we get advice from a functional perspective? How can we get best practices, insights, and advice out to the risk managers across this country, whether you're in a Fortune 100 company or you know, the unfortunate 5,000 uh, or a state and local or whatever it is, you know, we've got to be able to derive insights out of all the information we have developed over 15 plus years and that we're able to take from the haves, you know, the big banks that spend close to a billion dollars a year on cybersecurity, for instance. How do we work with them to distill down their learning and do a knowledge transfer into the have-nots? So that's a lot of yeah. the, the work we do. And then at the same time, providing, you know, some services, not in a way that supplants industry, but how do we get, you know, formerly classified um, indicators out of, you know, and transfer those to the ICE, uh, from the intelligence community out into the, 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 the defender community? Uh, we, we've, some of the tools I was talking about with the election uh, community are, are, you know, it's not a great name, cyber hygiene is kind of gross, but it's a vulnerability scanning capability yeah. um, that, that tells folks like, hey, you got a Windows XP box touching the internet, you, you should go take care of that. Those sorts of things. Again, just trying to clear out the underbrush and let the more sophisticated people take care of the more sophisticated threats. What about incident response? When it really hits the fan, to what extent can you either for other 99 federal agencies or for private critical infrastructure or otherwise um, provide someone to help out in emergency when they don't seem to have the in-house capability or the money to hire someone to do it themselves? Well, so, so that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the crux of it at the end there is like if they don't have the money or the resources, they should be developing the money or the resources or the contractual relationships. First and foremost, they should have the plan. What are they going to do when they have a bad day with ransomware? Um, Texas has a, is a great example. They had a plan. Yeah. Uh, this past summer, 23 jurisdictions locked up. I just before here was meeting with the uh, Department of Emergency Management Chief Nem Kidd. And funny thing about that is um, the emergency management teams running incident response for cyber, along with the Department of Information. Resources. Right. That's an, I was at a, a meeting of the Texas Cybersecurity Council um, talking about just these issues yesterday. Mm-hmm. So we, if we get a, de- a governor declared emergency, then it becomes a, an emergency management uh, operation center driven thing. But yeah. you still have this whole operation from the Department of yep. Information Resources side, yeah. we're pretty good because we've been forced to experience here in Texas to figure yeah. out how to who's calling who, who's yep. who's lead, and who's who in the zoo. Um, but where does something like that intersect with So what, what we're increasingly doing, yes, we have an incident response capability, but not from a, we're going to come in and recover and rebuild your network for yep. you. That's, we, we don't do network engineering. That's not our thing. We do, you know, we can do forensics. We can do strategic advisory services uh, for the federal government, state and local governments, private sector. Here's how you should be thinking about recovery. Uh, but we are really trying to push left of boom and get you know yep. things better so you don't Got have it. a bad day. Or if you do have a bad day, uh, you, you get back on your feet quickly. We do... Um, we do, you know, have a special, you know, a little soft spot if it's a advanced persistent threat, if it's a nation, uh, act, nas- uh, na- adversarial nation actor, um, we will deploy there and try to pick up better insights on what the Russians or Chinese or whatever are doing. And a lot of the times that's driven by um, our own intelligence and what we're able to collect, and we can go do some stealthy hunting. Is it fair to say you guys are practically functioning as a collection agency when doing that? Uh, I think that's... Yes, I think that's one way to look at I mean, it. In the same sense, that yeah. that's also true for diplomats when they're gathering sure. information. It's yeah. not, not yes. suggesting Title yeah. 50. I yeah, we are not a Title 50 no, organization, right? right? Um, and that's significant for a couple different reasons. One, we, you know, particularly in the current kind of data economy, if you want to call it that, the 
the slice of the intelligence pie is getting smaller and smaller as the rest of the data economy explodes, whether from open source, mm. whether from proprietary, all the threat intelligence. Yeah. So we try to sit at that kind of intersection of government, industry, pull it all together to get that bigger picture. And that's really what drove me last summer, uh, June 22nd, to issue an alert about an increase in Iranian activity. So I was talking to the IC. We were seeing an increase of activity, spear phishing and things like that, attempts to do account compromise across the federal civilian agencies. And then we talked to all the, um, the threat intelligence companies, and they were like, oh, my God, it's a hockey stick effect. So we pulled that all together, the bigger mosaic, and because we're not sitting in the classified space and we're not sitting in the private sector, we can sit there with a degree of you know, independence and authority and say, all right, here's what's happening. Um, this was summer. This is June 22nd. Yeah, yeah, this was. Um, a lot going on at that time. Of course, there, we'd just been mixing it up with the Iranians in the Gulf. And yes. then uh, in our nation's capital, there's some good baseball being played. That's that's right about when the Nats uh, started turning it on. And and um, I was at an event this uh, this this fall. Uh, yes, the Nats. Uh, I told my nine-year-old, again, as a UVA fan and a Nats fan, I was like, just, this is it. It doesn't Enjoy get it, any better. Yeah. It doesn't get any better than this. Um, if, if only we had not been robbed in the Orange Bowl. Uh, but 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 June 19th was a significant event. Um, that's the first time that Gerardo Parra walked up to the plate to Baby Shark. Um, but it's also, bless you, the, the same day it's that... Making, it's making Steve Hill. It really is. Right? I'm allergic to the dying. So, but June 19th, so Parra walks up, first time he walks up to Baby Shark. Uh, but it's also the day that the Iranians shot down the U.S. drone in the Gulf. These events are not unconnected. Everything is cyber, though. <laughs> and and then, you know, I announced the, uh, you know, I dropped the alert. Like, 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 the, like the sign stealing scandal? I guess that's cyber. Uh, you know, sure. Well, well, there's, there, there's, there's been some elements there. of cheating with cyber. The Astros, yes. The former Astros guy yes. uh, got busted for that right. Right. in yep. a prior scandal. Yep. Um, anyway, but I used, uh, it, it was Cyber Week in D.C. back in October. I think that's what it was. And I had some walkout music, and I used Baby oh, Shark. Did you? Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> Nobody awesome. knew what the hell was Yeah, we're about to go downstairs, and you give a talk. Do you want some, I can get the iPhone up to a microphone and give you some walkout music? I'm good. Uh, how about some Rush? Rush, yes. Uh, I don't want to preview too much where yeah. we're, we're getting there. Come back to the Iranians. Um, so that was then a moment of tension with Iran. Um, Yes, we are kind of back for more now. This has been an even more high-stakes uh, couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, what what do our listeners need to know about the sorts of uh, non-classified things that you're seeing and can yeah. talk about? Uh, how, how, how concerned should we be? Or is anything really different in kind right now? So the, what? So I actually moved pretty quick on this. So um, when, the, when the news broke that uh, Soleimani got uh, taken out by the drone strike, um, you know, I was doing what I do. Uh, got got myself on Twitter and retweeted my June twenty second alert. Yeah, I saw that and said, "Hey, uh, you know things are you know things could heat up. It's a good time uh, to to you know remind yourself of what the Iranians are capable of." Uh, but but the honest truth probably is it, which I guess is redundant. But the the truth here is <laughs> that is it, yeah, is it? Is, well, uh, um, the the truth here is that that if if the Iranians were going to do something, they would probably are, it, it was already too late. If they were going to do something cyber. Uh, cybery, they would they would probably already uh, be in a position and, and take the shot. Um, we we saw that they really didn't, and and kind of the way we look at it is there are three groups of actors we were concerned about. One is the the nation state actors, so right. the IRGC, RGC. the MOIS, and those kind of actors that have significant capabilities, um, 
but under control of, of Tehran and the Supreme Leader. The second set out is the um, the the proxy actors, so yeah. Hezbollah and Hamas and others that that are increasingly sophisticated in the space, but still, yeah. you know, they're not dropping zero days and stuff mm -hmm. like that. They're commodity malware right. types account account compromise. And really, as you go out to the last group of the sympathizers or the ideological patriotic, yeah, they're script kiddies. So they're they're the yeah. ones that are. Likely, yeah. we don't have confirmation here, but likely doing the website defacements. Cheap, easy. It's, yeah. you know, it's hey, our agriculture commission got his site defaced. Right, um, but but you know, other than that, I mean, because it was almost a no-notice event for the Iranians, they didn't have time really to strategically position yeah. against you know energy or oil and natural gas. Plus, you know, if you look at the parity of their response, you know, we took out a military asset in Iraq. They launched missiles at a military asset in Iraq. Yeah, we were. Tr there, there's an element of escalation theory here and parity and, and and staying staying within domain rather than going cross domain. Yeah, and and that it just changes the calculation. And so there, you know, again, we're trying to you know look at all the intelligence, look at you know theory uh, to a certain extent, and understand what might be next. But really, what we're trying to do is like, look, you got to pay attention. They're a capable actor, but they're not going to drop the grid again. We talked about the resilience of the grid, but also. The, you know, anything that they could do would likely be the temporary localized disruptive effects. Um, but what we wanted to do was, okay, let's, and this is particularly where I'm sitting now, is that, okay, things have cooled off. We've de-escalated. But you know what's still out there? Ransomware, and a lot of it, and that's bordering on national emergency. So take advantage of the heightened awareness of escalating uh, tensions with Iran to get in front of your leadership and say, these are the five things we need to do now to shore up defenses. Good, get it done. What do you think, Are the, if you had just one or two shots, if you're listening and you can order your organization to take a step and spend resources, do X now. Is it backups? Offline backups. Offline backups. And test the backups. Backups don't always work. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, that can happen. Awkward moment. Uh, have a plan. You know, if you get popped, know who you're going to call. Like, yeah. know if you've got contractors, have them, you know, on speed dial. Know how you're going to talk to your employees. Know how you're going to talk to your customers. Know how you're going to talk to the press. The Norsk Hydro event from over the summer, it's a European aluminum manufacturer. That, like, day one, they're like, yeah, we got owned. Come in. Hey, documentary. Come <laughs> oh, see what we've done. Yes. And then on the other hand, you've got what's going on now in the U.K. I'm not really sure what's happening there, but but with TravelX, and it's like, okay, this is interesting. They're, they're not really being forthright. There's an advantage to being transparent here, but it goes against... Um, I think your instincts of worried about brand reputation and legal liability. Right, and, no, and that's why you got you got to do exercises yeah. to yeah. decide in advance yeah. what your posture is going to yeah. be. Yeah. Um, so second, yeah. last thing is multi-factor multi authentication across the critical uh, accounts. Don't let them move around laterally. Don't make him. Don't let him get to the central point of control. The domain. So controller. prevent privilege esque by. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Segmentation. Yep. Um, do you have insights into whether the insurance industry is responding rapidly and effectively to drive better behavior on the part of their insureds in response to the ransomware threat, which presumably needs to be covered, and so people are going to be coming to their companies and seeking coverage, or is that not really something that's? That is a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think on the plus side, I think the insurance companies, uh, if you have cyber coverage, you tend to have to demonstrate a certain degree of proficiency um, and show that you've done certain things before you can get, theoretically, you can you can get insured. Um, so on, in some sense, yeah, there, there's some yeah. there's some there's some positives there. I think you know whether it's it's driven by insurance companies or not. I, I just have significant problems with, and this is not legal advice, but <laughs> 
Um, Nothing on this show ever is. Yes, yeah, so prefacing it that way, don't pay. Don't pay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's um, you know, we don't pay when, when humans are taken, ran- you know, people are taken ransom. Um, that's law. Um, th- this is not necessarily at the same scale, but I think it's really bad public policy where we are right now. We need to have this conversation, but paying ransom validates the model. Mm-hmm. It incentivizes them to go hit the next person down the road. And then moreover, you know, whether you believe that, that they have an incentive to be upright, uh, you know, forthright and upstanding criminals and, right. and hand over your, the decryption key and not come back, I just, I don't have a lot of faith that that's, right. that's how things work. They'll come back sooner or later. They may yeah. not come back. Somebody else is going to come back sooner or later. Right. Um, before we start getting more frivolous, let me come back to something you mentioned earlier, how in, at least in some cases, especially if it seems like there's an APT in the picture, there's a desire to learn as much as possible from the incident. And of course, private, state, local, if you think you're dealing with an a- APT, you, you need to get federal involvement. Um, is that is there a circumstance in which you guys, DHS, uh, partner with other federal agencies in ways where you know you draw on their capabilities? Is there is there stuff like that that you can talk about, or is that all stuff that's not really? I mean, yeah. I mean, for me, elections is a great uh, example. You know, what can I do to help um, to help the intelligence community understand where the risk is, so that they can drive better collection overseas, so that they can go target um, our adversaries, whether it's Russia or others, so that they don't. Uh, so they can pick up if there's any targeting of a, of a state or an election official or a, or a political campaign, something like that. Um, you know, the, the, the IC is not, you know, there's not a, you know, a, an election equipment cell sitting in ODNI. That's just not how things work. So I need to be able to work with the officials to say, here's what we're worried about. Um, you know, voter registration databases is a great example. Highly connected, highly centralized, um, you know, it, it, several you know, before the election, it's it's kind of the, the central point of aggregated risk. So we want to put a lot of protections around it, defend it, but also, you know, work as hard as possible to understand if anybody's out there trying to target this stuff. Um, and, you know, intel sharing, intel soaking, you know, really trying to get as much information about a certain actor and what their various incentives or, or motivations might be, uh, and then rapidly declassifying. You know, that's something that, so I'll say this, where we are in elections right now is federal government's never worked, as far as I have been privy to, federal government, I've never seen the federal government work as well together on any single issue. Huh, you don't hear that I mean, every day. This is where FBI, NSA, the intelligence community, CISA, there is zero daylight in terms of what we are trying to accomplish here. And it's it's a thing of beauty. Um, similarly, the, across the state and local community, uh, I kind of talked about it earlier, but you know, if you'd ask the average election official in 16, what their thoughts on you know Russia were? They're like, it's a country, you know, <laughs> not that they're targeting them. Now that's that's yeah. there. Everybody's um, you know we're we're in the we're in the right spot. We have the mechanisms to work together. The last thing though is you know there's we've got to do a lot more I think on the voter resilience side and and prepare the voter to vote. You know what is your plan to vote to go exercise your civic duty? You know do you know where you're registered? Do you know what's required if anything on that day to go vote? Uh, do you know your rights as a voter that if something goes down, you can request the provisional ballot? Um, but also, you know, that stuff that gets reported out on election night, that's unofficial data. Yeah. Certification happens weeks later. 
So it's really trying to make more educated, yeah, informed voters. I mean, that that thing you should put your finger on has always been a problem in terms of uh, people who vote later in the day, especially you know, out yeah, west. Right. Um, these early early calls and so right. forth before people have finished exercising their rights. It's almost like there's a scenario that you have that touches on this stuff. <laughs> Perhaps mm -hmm. so. And we'll be downstairs to visit the competition shortly. Um, but before we do that, we got to get frivolous in our remaining time. And we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Um, We've talked about baseball a little bit, but we've also mentioned Rush. Mm. And uh, Neil Peart passed away, one of the all-time great drummers. Of course, he was really interesting in that he was so much more than just a performing drummer. I mean, he was a very intellectual person. Uh, I take it you're, you're pretty familiar with his work, and you sound like a Rush fan, huh? So I was, uh, I was at home Friday night, uh, just got home. Yeah, I thought we'd done a good job with Iran uh, as, a, as a team and engaging people. So I was feeling pretty good, also because I didn't have to watch the Patriots play over the weekend. So I was excited yeah, about that. We can all agree on that. Yeah. Um, and then the news broke that he, had, that Neil Peart had, uh, it's Peart, by Is the way. Is it Peart? It's Peart. I've always said um, that. Hey, passed away. Call him Chris. <laughs> uh, had passed away on the 7th, and like I, it kind of rocked me, shed a little tear. Um, and then started popping up the library and just kind of, of their songs. First of all, he wasn't the first drummer for Rush. There's a guy named John Rutsey. What happened to him? Uh, they had a they had a difference of opinions. So so uh, Neil Peart came in and uh, picked up after the the for the first tour for the first album. Um, but the way they kind of broke out in the U.S. was um, WMMS in Cleveland uh, got a copy of. So they're from Canada, um, uh, Toronto, I guess, and. He'd gotten a copy, and they really played it. And it just "Working Man" was right the first song off the or the the first cut off the first album, and it really resonated, I guess, with Cleveland. And uh, anyway, so I was like in this Ohio mindset, and uh, yesterday I was in Columbus, Ohio, to talk to all the election officials, oh, nice. and I managed to weave together an entire keynote that started up front <laughs> and then closed with, you know, it, it was a. I enjoyed it, and they said, I think if if you're born in Ohio, you're. Um, by birth, a member of the Rush fan club. So this is sort of like New Jersey and the boss. And the boss, yeah, right, yeah. right. It is interesting, every, you know, Minnesota's got Prince, uh, you know, uh, sort of posthumously St. Louis now has uh, Lord Brannigan. Uh, what, what, Steve, what have we got here? Robert O'Keen. Oh, that's a solid choice. Now, Steve Ray Vaughan, to your, to yes, your point about yes, feeling the punch, yes. and his surprising, much oh, younger yeah, yeah, dad yeah, had yeah. that gut punch quality here in Texas. Um, yeah, you're the native. Yeah, well, so what about, what's the New York equivalent? I, I mean, is, feel like, is, is it Paul Simon? Is that does he? He has a certain resonance for New York City. I Paul think. Paul Simon, um, Sinatra, right? Sinatra. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I think going back even before like the jazz era, I think there are you know, um, gosh, uh, Duke Ellington. I mean, I think yeah. I think you could do a yeah. lot of you know. I mean, yeah. a lot of those folks weren't from New York, but sort of came to be associated right. with. This sounds like a future uh, for yeah. all these segments, sort of top five. Uh, well, yeah, they do those regionally. maps, right? Like they do those maps, like what is the most common profession in each state? Right, or, you could be like, who's, you know, who's <laughs> the most beloved employee, performer? Right, who's yeah. associated with that state? Oh, that's good. All right, so that's. Well, so I'm from Atlanta, so yeah, you, I guess you'd have to say the Almond Brothers. I was gonna say that, although, although I will take Leonard Skinner. I, I mean, Indigo Girls. Skinner's from I'm Florida. A, I'm a, from yeah. Jacksonville. But, but they, they have this yeah. great line in the, the the famous live version of Freebird. You know, play it pretty for Atlanta. So I always yeah. just assumed that was a hometown gig. I, for I always I always love the Indigo Girls who are from Georgia. There's, that's an Athens band, yeah. yeah. REM. Oh yes, REM. yes, yes, yes. We're gonna go yes. Athens. Yes. Yeah. I feel like Atlanta can claim Athens. For, for sure, the sure. greater metropolitan area. You may have to do genres, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the problem. I feel like there's a whole different side of Atlanta music as well. But Can we pivot to sports for a second? Yeah, speaking um, of... Speaking oh, wait, Atlanta. so there yeah, is yeah. one quick... Oh, another, did no you period. see the, uh, the, the Alec... Uh, there was an Alec Trebek um, 
cut on all the times he says uh, genre and the way he says it. Is it, is it a particular, <laughs> it's amazing. Is it a particular? Like, yes. I can't even do it. I can't even do it. You'll have to go. It's, there, there was the time that he, there was a clue about Les Mis and he talked about Jean Valjean. Oh, no. <laughs> but you got like, he's, he's, he's a, uh, I guess, a North American treasure, we'll say. I think there was a <laughs> Canadian, cyber, right? yeah. there was a cyber question in, in the GOAT uh, episode, I think. Well, I know that, I, I know that Ken Jennings just won the yes. whole thing and I, I did actually catch some of that and I thought, it seems to me they're kind of lining him up maybe to be Trebek's successor, yeah. which would be, you know, I think there are a lot of cool people who could do that, but um, we've left ourselves, we've left ourselves <laughs> three, 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 three minutes for, for frivolity. Well, first of all, sports, uh, your Giants have a new coach. Uh, who is this guy? <laughs> are you excited that that's who they got? Eh. You did not get Matt Rule. The Panthers got him. They did not get Matt Rule. Um, um, yeah, what, Judge, Joe Judge, right? The, Joe the Judge, Patriots so special teams yeah, coach. Joe Judge. And so the, the NFC East now has three new coaches, right? Yeah. Mike McCarthy. Yeah. Uh, is it uh, and Washington's got uh, is it um, Rivera, uh, yeah, Ron Rivera. Rivera? Ron Rivera, double yeah. R, and then yeah. and now you got the J. double J. It's the alliterative. It's the alliterative. It's the alliterative. They may not be good, but they're alliterative. <laughs> <laughs> that could be us. Um, yeah. So and then concluding the the scandal. I mean, obviously we'll do Star Wars another time. Yeah. But, um, I, I think I think the real question here is like I mean I you know I played baseball growing up. Like is there is there a difference between all of the cheating that ha- like b- people cheat in baseball? It's just what you do. Like you know. So give me an example of like the sort of like. It's I, cheating, I relate, but it's I within the. When I was on, when I was run, when I was leading off of second in high school, I would relate, and, and we could figure out what the signs were. I relate that's them not cheating. better. Well, is that's the question. It's not. Okay, so, why, why not? So is that just human enabled, right? You got a man on base. You got a most this, che- most cheating is human enabled. But the same thing was going on in Game Seven, right? Where. Uh, uh, he was tipping his pitches. So, so right, right. So, so yeah, if you guys tip his pitches, way, shame I am, on you, I am, not on me. I am me. taking the opposite position of what I think. I actually think there's right. a world of difference between you know accepting the tip pitches between you know manually relaying signs yeah. by hand from second base. I actually think like you know that's all just like I'm you know you're, that's just competing. But you know, installing a special television at the end of the dugout and using a special center field camera angle, and, right? It's like, not on the seven second delay, right? Like yeah. that's that that to me. So so I actually do think there's a difference. Excessive. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. yeah no, it, it seems like tech enabled. It, it's like a lot of things where technological change has taken a category where there was some acceptability right. with what the physical and practical boundaries were. Technology changes it and enables something different in scale. I mean, let me no this Imagine, to me, there's a difference between like a spitball, right, and you know, a team that buys this super fancy, you know, um, machine that they store all their baseballs and that artificially like warps some of the baseballs to make them spin mm. differently, right? Like, like yeah. you know, one is just the competitor in the moment doing his thing. The other is like a conspiracy. Is this a little bit like the debate over performance enhancing either uh, drugs? As compared to just eating right and doing, you know, either way you're putting things in your body and it's right. having a physical effect, and one of them just feels a little more tech-enabled yeah, and therefore right. somehow beyond the bounds of what we'd expect everyone to be able to do and would tolerate I mean, them well, doing. But it's like it's outside the foul lines, right? So it's an externality outside the foul yeah. lines that influences the game. So it's been, like even pine tar, right? Yeah. To a certain extent. So, 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 so you would draw the line physically or you would draw the line technologically? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, this is, you know, one of the single moments in baseball history is the shot heard around the world, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the long accepted scuttlebutt is that the Giants were relaying signs through a telescope from center field, right? That, like, you know, Bobby Thompson was probably cheating when he hit that home run, right? And yet, you know, we yeah. don't remember that part. But that's a really interesting point with this last series. What if right. 
the Strohs right. had won. What yeah. do you do? Yeah, yeah. How far back? Do you, how do you unwind it? Or do you, is it like the steroid <laughs> era where you just well, say, like, I was, we know I, this is tainted, move we haven't, we haven't yet heard from Major League Baseball about the Red Sox, right? Um, we don't know what the punishments yeah. fully might be. So, you know, I mean, I think the Red Sox were trying to get ahead of things by dumping off, you know, uh, Alex Cora. I think the Mets were trying to get ahead of things by, you know, getting rid of Beltron. Um, I suspect that from a team perspective, that's the end of it. Until and unless Manfred does more, and I think that's going to be the interesting question going forward. But I have to say, like I, you know, I, I've gotten in this fight with four or five of my friends, three of whom are Astros fans, um, right? That like I really do think this is different. Like this, this feels different to me. I can articulate why I think it's different from just the, yeah. the conventional from in between the lines. A player figuring out what's going on. But yeah. Again, from an outcome, say they'd won the series, it's it, you know, like Memphis, like those national championships yeah. never happen. Like did yeah. with the with this. So I don't know. With the Nationals, just, have you know, been... the, so my favorite my favorite show after the National Security Law podcast is uh, is, <laughs> is, is, is part of the interruption. And this was uh. and, and what they were talking about is there seems to be a distinction between college sports where it's pretty common to vacate yeah. titles, yep. trophies, yeah, right. yeah, the pros don't, and the pros don't. And I guess the question is, you know, does that hold up? I mean, is that yeah. you know, are we as as colleges are we holding ourselves to a higher standard? And yeah. in, in the NCAA is trying to. I mean, I, I I laugh to even say that sentence. And, and and this gets us back to the Hall of Fame debate, right? I mean, should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame just with a big old sign, right, that says yeah. you know he bet on baseball? Oh, I look. I think that now that there's so many people in the Hall who yeah. were in the steroid <laughs> era, I think that Pete Rose ought to be in the Hall. But that I mean, it's, you know, only only I mean, you know, I woke up Monday and Pete Rose was trending on Twitter, and I'm trying to uh, figure out, like, you know, it's probably not a good sign. Probably not unless, a good sign. In, either for his health or for what's going on in baseball. So I just, I, you know, it's, I, I think it's it's a really interesting lesson in, I mean, if I can step back for a second, in how technology complicates ethics, mm. um, yeah. and right, and how technology actually might, in fact, take things that we're okay with and turn them into things that we're not okay with just because of the scale. The privacy law scholars out there all will be nodding their head saying, yes, exactly, practical anonymity was a thing, and technology disrupted yeah. that because of mass databases yeah. and the efficiencies it unlocks. So, so here's why I, I don't I don't want to prolong this because I know you guys both have to go, but I, I want to sort of put this out there. I am struck by what to me is the is the visceral similarity between the debate over whether what the Astros were doing was qualitatively worse with the debate over whether Varsity Blues was qualitatively worse than Jared Kushner, right? Like, like, right? My mind is spinning. The first of all, are we talking about Varsity Blues the <laughs> scandal or Varsity Blues the movie? Yes. Um, so, no, but like, like, right? The, I, it, it, to me, it is of a piece with the question of like, you know, when a parent gives ten million dollars to a university for a building, right at the same time that their child's applying. Right versus bribing people at the right. university no, to spe like, spectra of nepotism, but but also spectra ethics versus law, and I think mm -hmm. that's you know that's we spend way too little time talking about where the line is between things that are ethical and legal and things that are ethical and illegal or things that are unethical and like I mean that yeah. they're separate. Yeah, well, it's just like policy versus legality, and we talked about that last week. Lawful we'll come back awful. to it. Yeah, um, this podcast is both. I, I think that we can only end with the famous words of James Vanderbeek, who said. I, I don't, don't want your, your life. life. Very good. That's uh, not planned. Um, it really obviously, because who? Why would anyone plan that? I think that's it. We got to go downstairs. Chris, and thank close you for, us out. Thanks for joining Chris, us. Chris, you've been thanks a great sport. Hey, hey, I missed, what just happened in the last couple minutes? I stepped out for a second. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> come back. Come back in, uh, in another 150 the soundproof episodes. Soundproof booth. We kept you in. Thanks for um, having me, guys. All right. Yeah, and uh, you know he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. What is the sis's Twitter handle? At sisagov. Is that where you tweet from, though, or do you tweet from I, your own? I uh, tweet from Sissa Krebs. 
Crabs. Um, Assets of Crabs. C I S A K R E B S. Ah, a Homeland Security official on Twitter who I actually don't want to yell at all the time. Hey, Steve, you can start enjoying Twitter instead of fighting it. I said that, he didn't. That's uh, right. Stay safe out there. Adios. I'm going straight to hell for that one. <laughs>